0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. Has two decades of distance from the 20th century changed our perceptions of its course, as well as the themes and events that shaped it and us? The critic's political editor Graham Stewart discusses with the historian Professor Jeremy Black, Senior Fellow at Policy Exchange, whether greater distance from the 20th century alters our perception of it.
1: Professor Jeremy Black, if we were writing about the history, a world history of the 20th century in 2020, would we approach it? in any way differently from how we might have done so if we'd been writing it in the year 2000?
2: I think that's definitely the case, that we would present it differently. And I think that it would um, underline the value of a sense of unpredictability. Now, as you may know from my books, I've always argued that history is not a linear process. In other words, what happens in, shall we say, 2020 does not give you a prediction of what's going to happen in 2022. And certainly the last two decades, uh, not least in um, political terms, the challenges to Western uh, political, cultural, and economic models and sort of pre, pre, predominance uh, were ones that maybe could not be predicted by most people or were not predicted uh, 20 years ago. I mean, in practical terms, the one element that should have been obvious, and you know, when I came to write my book on the world in the 20th century, it was the Uh, element I put foremost, and it's still, I think, the key element, was the uh, consequences, the destabilizing consequences of the unprecedented rise in the world's population. And that continued right the way through the 20th century. The World War's made very little dent on it, and it's been continuing ever since. And I would argue that many of the instabilities that we see now in terms of pressures on resources, concern over the environment, are in part, not completely, but in part, consequences of this rise in population. So that element, I think, was predictable. And in a sense, I am amazed when people write about the world today that they don't put more of an emphasis on. So that as we have discussed on this program, it's ironic to see so much talked about the human cost of the uh, COVID pandemic, because the reality is the world's population is still shooting up.
1: Well, you raise a very interesting point. I was at school in the 1970s and 1980s, and the effects, the consequences of the soaring world population was taught. It was taught in the classroom, but it was taught in the geography classes. It wasn't taught in history. Uh, Is this uh, an area of of where there there can be kind of greater fusion between um, history and social sciences or is there an approach which only the historian should take?
2: No, I don't think it should be only the historian. I don't think historians own the past, and the past is the basic data set we have alongside the present, and the present is only a fragment of time between the past and the future. So there are different ways of looking at the past, and there are indeed different historical interpretations. So uh, it is useful to see what other subjects Uh, uh, bring forward the key element for them as indeed for historians has to be in my view an understanding both of the role of context of the danger of assuming that any one judgment is definitive and of the need, if you are a uh, a historian, in other words, anybody interested in the past, to understand that evidence can be viewed in more than one way. It doesn't mean that all interpretations are of equal merit, but it does mean that you've got to be very careful about how the past is used to validate a particular approach. But looping back, for example, you mentioned the importance of population. I mean, looping back, the other significant change, I suppose, in 20th century history, and again, this, um, you know, for some of us we were already there in the late 20th century but the rest are sort of catching up very slowly was the importance of world history now unfortunately in britain and the united states this has been confused by an entirely different matter called decolonization because decolonization is partisan, it's very very strident, it's very ahistorical. Um, But world history, putting due weight on other parts of the world um, in particular East and South uh, Asia, which is where the majority of the population were throughout the 20th century would, for example, if you were looking at the first uh, 20 years of the century, you'd be very concerned about very interested in the overthrow of monarchy, the imperial system in China. Um, if you were looking at um, the sort of the period of World War Two, you might date World War Two from 1937 when the Japanese attacked China, etc., etc. Now, that, I think, is very pertinent to how we look at history, uh, not in a sense of any particular sympathy or lack of sympathy for any uh, outcomes, but just in, in the case of sort of weighing what seems particularly of significance.
1: A lot of the attempts at world history have come from a Western perspective, a Western perspective from Western historians on world history. Is it really possible to have a properly balanced uh, work of grand historical synthesis which betrays no idea of the... Uh, civilization from, from which the historian approaches the topic, or is, is that simply an impossible ideal?
2: Well, I don't think it's a helpful ideal, um, because as I said just a few minutes ago, I think the notion of pursuing definitive status... Whether you're, whichever culture you're writing from is a mistake and whenever I read on the back of a book somebody um, sort of pushing it saying this is the definitive book on X, you know that either the author is a fool or the publicist is a fool or the reviewer is a fool or generally all three together because you can't have that kind of definitive work and certainly not in um, treating anything of any scale. Um, so if on the other hand you understand history as perpetually a work in progress, an interim report, then clearly you can have um, uh, attempts at writing global history from a number of different perspectives. And they are exciting. It's much more exciting to do that. I mean, you know, in the late 90s, I edited the Dawling Kindersley uh, Atlas of World History. It was genuinely exciting to decide how much of an emphasis did we put on China or, or, or India? How do we do our maps? What topics do we pick? Do we pick what projections and perspectives do we use? How far do we show past maps from those cultures in order to illuminate their cartographic imaginations? All of those are really interesting, and I think they're interesting for readers as well. So I don't think that one should give up because it's impossible to have perfection. And indeed, what's sad is, um, you know, I, I recently had a discussion on radio with a Dr. Gopal from, in, uh, from um, Cambridge, about um, decolonization. And she was very eager for that, which is her prerogative. But I did suggest that if we wanted to understand the British Empire, it would be useful to look at it in the context of other empires. I specifically mentioned the Portuguese Empire because, of course, that was also a very major slave trading empire and very large colonial presence in Africa in particular but didn't have economic takeoff off as, as Britain did um, and I also mentioned China and I, I, I was roundly told off for this and indeed most of the people who support decolonisation in, in, in the terms of discussing it in Britain are very 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 narrow indeed because what is really important is to try and aspire as far as possible if one is looking at and addressing topics that you regard as important such as imperialism or or slavery, or anything else that you might regard as significant, to try and do that in a cross-cultural comparative term is absolutely crucial, because otherwise one's judgments about the situation, about the possibility of the age, about processes of causation, are necessarily very limited indeed.
1: There's also, I think, the, the problem, or the problem as some people would see it, of you know, how do we frame, let us call them liberation uh, uh, movements at the end of colonisation? You know, are they throwing off the West, or many of them are Marxist-Leninists, um, you know, drawing their inspiration? Uh, from uh, from Western Ford, you, uh, c- can we even break away an understanding of the decolo- decolonisation movement w- without, at the same time, almost reinforcing the the uh, totality of of Western Ford?
2: Well, I think if you're looking at any process of decolonization if you want to use that term the disintegration of empire there is a temptation on the global scale to try and fit it into a global narrative and you've offered two of those what we tend to do is to not look sufficiently at the specificities on the ground which ensured that there were different outcomes So, you know, if you want to move away from the context of the British Empire and you looked at the Spanish Empire, why did um, Spanish America move different parts of it in different directions, which I think is a very instructive way of removing oneself from some single model? And I think this nature of specificity is very, very important because it, underp- it undermines the great sort of the great analytical sweep—the attempt to argue that there is a single cause—which I am very wary of. Whether I personally might or might not sympathise uh, with the politics of the person expounding that view, I'm always extraordinarily dubious about an attempt to offer a general proposition, and that I think is the tension if you're writing global history there I think there is this central tension because there is the desire of many of the people that do it to return a clear sense of comprehension a clear uh, a clear explanation whereas the reality is that actually you don't really have that and in my view you should, you should introduce the reader to complexity now specifically on the point of empire I think one of the points that uh, one of the issues that people don't tend to address adequately is empire was simultaneously being made and unmade at the same time. The idea that you have empire and then its dissolution, that you have colonialism and then decolonization is, I think, a a misleading one. And also, there is a failure in the case of many people talking about governance, whether they're talking about governance in whatever you mean by a national context or whatever you mean by an international or imperial context. There is a failure to accept that in most societies, I would argue all societies other than the most simplistic uh, governance and power is a matter of a sort of aggregation of interest groups um so that for example um the british in india which you know matter of great contention of course uh, were able to be the imperial group because like the mughals beforehand who had also been invaders um, they were able to um as it were link in with um to a certain case through intimidation and coercion to a certain extent through mutual profit sharing um, Particular groups and elites are within that, and one of the ironic things that's very funny today—I mean, funny, sad, whatever term you want to use—is that many of the people who are most um, uh, angry about uh, complaining about imperialism, uh, their forebears were, in fact, people who profited directly, and that they now, in a sense, are in a different form of interest aggregation. In other words, getting jobs in nice universities or getting jobs in bureaucratic systems within uh, within countries in which a different rhetoric is most convenient for them. And, you know, that's what happens. It's exactly what you would expect to happen if you were a historian or a sociologist.
1: I I want to look at some big themes. Do you think it's possible to really write um, a kind of high politics version of world history in the 20th century? Or does that involve too much uh, specific to the political cultures of individual countries for it to work on a global basis. Does the global history work better looking at at, um, uh, social and economic uh, and technological progress and, and less well at political decisions?
2: Well, I think that you're right if you're expecting a level of detail. Yes. I mean, there are not um, all that many examples that you can look at for the 19th century Osterhamel, Jürgen Osterhamel's one translated into English and published by Princeton, is an interesting example, although Osterhamel, in my view, uh, and I did review it, um, underplayed uh, the political dimension. Um, but for the 20th century, when you have, as it were, a greater number of political players in the sense of independent states, then this becomes very difficult indeed. And obviously, if you aggregate states, you risk enormous amounts of, uh, problems in sorry large number of problems in terms of failing at exactly what we were talking about earlier to understand their specificity the problem is as you mentioned with the socioeconomic one is if you have a socioeconomic one you can and you risk um, a structuralism that's reductionist in other words in which people act simply because of the commentator's view of what is their um, socioeconomic status and interests, And as we know, that is both flawed as an account of human motivation and also tends tends to be highly flawed as a a matter of categorizing society. So I'll come back to my point. I think the most mature form of history and historical writing and historical reading is when the author, the narrator, the speaker, whatever, or, or the reader understands that there is complexity here, understands that there is not a complete answer, and is not given that view from the text, whatever form the text is. Now that, I think, is a much more mature form of history. So if you wanted to write your history of the 20th century world, your history of the 20th century world can start off, in my view, By stating a number of problems, some of which we have discussed, there are others as well. Relationship between high and low culture, for example, is a classic one, which I think we could talk about the relationship between uh, vernacular and international languages and the implications of those is another one that's very important. So we can state some of those and then take some of those the themes through in terms of problems, in terms of uncertainties, rather than pretending that we have this, this some sort of definitive answer. I mean, what other key things apart from population rise can you see generally across the period? Well, urbanization, I think, is one. But urbanization could be then discussed not simply in terms of more people living in cities and a greater percentage of the population living in cities both of which is true, but using that as a model to try and consider the rise of um, a a, a politics in which there's less deference, less concern with hierarchy, um, and more volatility. And I would say if you're looking for a political narrative of the 20th century, the key element I would focus on is volatility as a as it were, an environment and a form, rather than the context of particular uh, ideologies. I think the other element the other element that, in my view, tends to be underplayed when we're looking at the 20th century is religion. Religion, both as a matter of individual faith, as a belief system, as a way in which people identify uh, and have a sense of identity within individual communities, but across time and space. Now, that, again, you can talk about without having to give a blow-by-blow account of what happened to Shias and Catholics, uh, Protestants and and, and Hindus. So I I think that you can introduce topics and themes without setting out to be comprehensive the two things that tend to go wrong is when people aim to be comprehensive and definitive and the method you should always be uh, opposed to is somebody being definitive and saying this is the most important when you read that you know there should be well basically you're worth dumping the book because time is short
1: i I want to pick out two big themes which might appear to be in conflict and get your view on it. One is to divide the 20th century between an age of authoritarianism and a a rise of individualism Uh, and and the other is to see the 20th century as a period of increasing cultural globalisation which suggests a degree of homogenization, uh, which might run against the idea of the rise, rise of individualism.
2: Well, more people, uh, sorry, let, let's rephrase this, a greater percentage of the steadily greater pop size population are people that have had an ability through disposable income and or through not having to do uh, physically totally exhausting Uh, work and or through literacy and education, a greater percentage of the population has an ability to respond as individuals. Now, clearly, those responses are affected uh, by all sorts of constraints and opportunities in terms of social, cultural, ideological, political and economic pressures, Um, But at the same time, I would say that if you were looking at the term individualism, that better describes the 20th century than any particular previous age. Now, alongside that, you've had ideologies that have tried to very much argue that the individuals should be subordinated to a greater collectivity. And those ideologies have had considerable suasion, uh, particularly um in east asia um the europe the eurasian model the european models communism and uh fascism nazism uh failed in the eurasian heartland uh, but i think it's fair to say there are still societies where uh, there is no possibility to have a democratic way of changing government where the rule of law is totally under the state etc etc and in those societies the ideology the ideology is highly against individualism now what is unclear is where we're going to be going from here if you think the species is he- heading for enormous problems in terms of resources, environmental pressure, and so on, then it is possible that authoritarianism will come to the fore, and if authoritarianism will almost certainly uh, be directed against individualism. And if that is the case, um, then the 20th century and the early 21st century might be viewed as a particular period which then was moved aside, as it were, it might be damned i mean after all um we we might have people in the next generation saying our generation was completely worthless because uh it followed all sorts of um strange gods might not have put up statues to them but things that people didn't like in the next generation time i don't know um but i would say that individualism at the present moment is more pronounced possibly than ever before and you can see that also in social terms in the relationships between children and adults uh, between children and their parents, and between men and women, all of which, as in terms of norms, are different in most though not all cultures of the world
1: and would you put the increasing level of individualism down to key political decisions, which may in turn have produced economic consequences, or is this something broader that almost transcends politics, transcends ideologies? I mean, if we were writing about a history of China um in the 20th century, i think it definitely transcends no no no, i think it
2: transcends societies and ideologies i think the key thing and a key mover of change in the 20th century was obviously capitalism giving individuals and greater number than ever before purchasing power so they can make their own decisions about what clothes to wear um who to talk to, uh, where to eat, what to eat. Um, All of these are essentially products of capitalism, which has been the biggest cause of freedom for individuals, I think, in world history. Um, So that's been very, very significant. And it's no accident that societies that... Um, are restrictive of capitalism Um, Cuba for example or North Korea are societies which are highly intolerant and it's no accident that those people who want to live in a subsidized bubble I mean I suppose you could say academics um, are people who are often very intolerant of capitalism and intolerant of the freedoms and individualism of others Um, but um, I would say capitalism is not the only cause as I've already indicated Um, Um, Moving to cities is very important. Urbanization is very significant in terms of the breakdown of the previous control of the landlord and the local religious figure. I think that's very significant. And if you look at religion, which I mentioned earlier, religion remains very important. But one of the interesting things is the extent to which now those who are religious are able to choose which faith they want to follow and choose the frequency with which they wish to follow it. So that, for example, you have the tension between Islam and Christianity in Africa, in which both sides are operating through proselytization. You have Protestant proselytization in Latin America, and so on. This is, in a sense, a form of consumerism. Um, and the very notion which you see repeatedly, um, you know, people sometimes in Britain make fun of it, which I think is unfair, uh, but, you know, the religious people saying, oh, well, has God spoken to you or God has spoken to me, which is that sort of approach that is sometimes you get said, which can be a little alarming the first time you hear it, but it is very much a matter of individualism, which is different to previous ideas that were dominant there. Um, So I think these, This is very significant if you're looking at different cultures. Consumerism, capitalism, individualism helped very much to make the 20th century, but obviously there was persistent resistance to it by elites and groups. Um, elites, often the people that ran states in their own interests, governments which sought to constrain people's individual preferences. And I think that tension has been a very important one. So if you wanted to look for a central uh, idea for the 20th century, it could be that it, the this tension between uh, individualism and collectivism, but the difference would be that the, as it were, the collectivist are not simply the people that ran, as it were, the gulags of the Soviet Union or the um, concentration camps of Nazi Germany, which included among their, their victims, not just Jews, but for example, you know, any individualist who opposed the politics or norms of the Nazi state, but also um, you could argue that in the kind of socialist social welfare states, you have the same kind of collectivist, um, sort of uh, uh, intentionality and you know we've moved to a world which now there are so-called thought crimes you're not supposed to express particular things you're obviously not supposed to do things so for example I don't smoke cigarettes but were you to smoke a cigarette in public you are taking part in what in a form is a social crime now so that's a very much a response of the collectivity towards an individualism which would have been regarded as perfectly normal 50 years ago
1: Yes so they're real cross currents aren't there so many things restrictions, prohibitions, taboos are being lifted, but in other respects new new forms of of control are being introduced i'd like to I'm just really. I'd like to end uh just by putting you on the spot, Professor Black, and saying for the the general reader who might be be new to the subject and might want two or three real primers, two or three great books, great syntheses of the the grand sweep of the 20th century. What would you recommend uh, for them, and why?
2: Right, well, first of all, and this one covers more than the 20th century, I would recommend, although it's now getting quite old, the companion volume to the New Cambridge Modern History. And that looked at a lot of topics over um a 500 year period and i think that's really interesting you get a number of scholars and i think it's good it's not good enough on some subjects but it's good second of all just because it builds up with what i've been saying people are quite happy to throw stones at me my world in the 20th century i think that's very good uh because it tries to introduce you to the world of uncertainty and also because it tries to give due weight to the latter decades of the century and all too much of our work on the 20th century as it were focuses on the 1914 to 45 or the 1914 to 68 period or even the 1914 to the end of the cold war and i think we ought to carry and cover much more than that and lastly, uh, because I am very interested in spatial uh, characteristics i 'd recommend a book which unfortunately, because of its cost and bulk you 'd have to look in at, at in a library, uh, but which is very interesting, which i 've got nothing to do with i 've got my own copy, but I' nothing to do with one i 've done and that 's the two volumes on the twentieth century in the history of cartography, the great uh, uh, University of Chicago. Uh, project. Uh, And those are very interesting to look at the way the world was looked at in the 20th century, which is a a topic I also tried to cover in my book, Maps and History, Uh, because how we look at the world is very important to our understanding of it. Um, But what I would really like people listening to this to come away from, Is the idea that to understand a period, you you must grasp that the extent to which it is inevitably malleable, porous, that people that try and fix uh, explanations on an age, you know, the concept of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, they're wrong. It's not simply that I'm giving you a matter of opinion. They're wrong because human beings defy through their nature and their uh, society and the way they think such simple
1: categorization. Professor Blank, that's a powerful thought to end on. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, Why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.